Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the sin of silence. Sin is something we don't often talk about on inappropriate conversations, but it's something I want to do today because I think it's going to tie in in a strange way to the show before and the show after. Our different drummer today will have a connection with the previous inappropriate conversation dealing with the question of what it means to be less than human because our different drummer is another biographical target of the author that I quoted in last week's show. Also, if I do this right, by the end of the show, there'll be a connection to what I'm going to talk about in the next Inappropriate Conversations. And even though I don't feel like, as a podcast, there's really a clear through line here, I don't think anybody has to go back to the beginning, of course, and I don't know that there's very many cases where there's two-parters. There's been a few, but where they exist, I think they're fairly obvious, and I don't think I've ever done a three-parter that was truly a three-part Inappropriate conversation show, and this isn't one either. It's just that there's a little through line here that's probably worth making note of right at the beginning. But first, a little bit of house cleaning. Inappropriate conversations can be found on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher is an excellent way to listen to podcasts on the go from your mobile phone. I, for me, it's the iPhone, but it also works just as well on the Android device. So that's how uh, I listen to a lot of the podcasts, especially the ones that come out when I'm out and about, not at home, and unable to sync up my MP3 player. Stitcher.com is how you can get the same access. You can find Inappropriate Conversations at www.inappropriateconversations.org. And from there, you'll find that there is a new podcast that has been released, sort of a subsidiary of Inappropriate Conversations. It won't get its own website. It won't get its own RSS feed. It's just going to be a second show that comes out less often than this one, and at the same website. It's called Walk the Earth, and it's going to deal specifically with the challenges of making a change from one church, perhaps even one denomination, to another. Each show will focus not on a particular church or a particular weekly visit, but instead some of the dynamics involved in trying to evaluate what the right church home is. And that one's called Walk the Earth. Finally, I can be found on Facebook. Inappropriate Conversations has a, as a page. It's listed as a cause. And Walk the Earth also has a page on Facebook. And on Twitter, I am at IC underscore Greg. That is the resource for updates on podcasts coming out or retweets of podcasts I love involving both Inappropriate Conversations, Walk the Earth, and friends of mine online. So let's start with this concept of sin, because... It seems like if you look at Walk the Earth as being a podcast, it's going to really be all about the hunt for a church, and therefore very much focused on questions of religion and inappropriate conversations, subject matter-wise, is going to stay exactly the same as it's always been. There won't be a change here. This is not separating things, because that would obviously betray the entire mission statement for inappropriate conversations. How in the world could I separate my political thoughts from my religious thoughts when Inappropriate conversations has a lot to do with how those two feed upon each other and ideally should inform each other. So if that's not going to be what's going to happen, then what do I mean when I start talking about the sin of silence here on the inappropriate conversations side of the fence? 
Well, it's not the first time I've really talked about this concept of silence being dangerous. When I mentioned Larry Crabb as a different drummer in the very first year, I believe, of the show, that was an effort to talk about his book in particular, The Silence of Adam, where he takes a look at those chapters in the beginning of Genesis, speaking about the serpent tempting Eve and where was Adam at the time. And Larry Crabb's theory is that Adam was standing right there and his sin was he had nothing to say. He was deferring to whatever might come from the conversation between Eve and the serpent. And his point was that so often men in relationships do this. They shut down completely. They defer to their spouse or to parents or whoever's sort of driving the train. If there's nothing, quote unquote, in it for him, he's just going to let things go down as they may. And that isn't necessarily inherently the wrong approach. Sometimes allowing a teenage son or daughter, for example, to make a crucial decision without a lot of prompting and certainly without a, a lot of parental control is exactly the right type of parenting for growing proper independence and forcing, in some cases, a teenager to use smart decision-making and to think things all the way through. Because as most of us know, certainly those of us who've been a teenager and have a recollection of those years, thinking things all the way through is one of the bigger challenges. And to tie this back to this concept that Larry Crabb introduced to me, it's very important for parents, fathers and sons, for example, to find the right ways and the right opportunities to speak to each other, to offer those words of encouragement, to say, hey, I believe in you. I'm here for you. This is going to work. So sometimes the silence is sinful if we're not speaking those words. But I want to say instead that a lot of times when you look at, you know, what is, what is the core driving force? What is the, the key epiphany in my life that might lead me to have a point of view about silence? I have a friend of mine who attends a church in Dallas that's Presbyterian, and I, I was talking to him about the church hunt, and he indicated to me that you know his church would be a great church for me if I just lived nearby. And I thought, well, you know, that's why I keep hearing a lot of that, that there's lots of great churches in places like Washington State and, and Texas that I'm nowhere near being able to go to. But we were in conversation, and, w and what I said was, I really don't like this whole notion that some evangelical Christians have, the born-again Christian mentality, where a question becomes, hey, when did you get saved? And you're expected to give an answer. You're expected to remember the date and the time and the moment and the circumstances and what it meant, because that was the crucial turning point. When did you get saved? And he said he, he shared that point of view, and Jim told me his pastor has always said and always has always led others to say, when that question of when did you get saved come up, say more than 2,000 years ago, just like everybody else. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. In other words, is the answer coming from the Presbyterian church in Dallas in this case, and a very good answer. So I have a crucial moment of epiphany, but I don't feel like that was a moment of saving grace for me because I was already a Christian and I was already exploring my faith. But it was a moment that I recall being at that time of immediate need, that crucial moment of need. I refer to it as Revelation Weekend. And in fact, there's a episode in the past for Inappropriate Conversations that goes by the title, Revelation Weekend. And it's precisely this, this word of encouragement that I heard, that said it's far better to say something that should not be said than not to say something that should be said. And I've always described that as the idea that you can always try to cover the lost ground if your big mouth has gotten you into trouble. 
I've shared this with some friends I've met online, some Christian friends who've offered me encouragement, and I've tried to offer it right back, and, and I've occasionally heard, ooh, yeah, I'm not comfortable with that quote. I'm not disputing that you may have heard it from the Lord himself, but it makes me uncomfortable because I know my mouth has gotten me in more trouble than it's ever bailed me out of. And I acknowledge, hey, that's, that's not just true for you, that's true for me too. But when you think about it, if you don't say something at the crucial moment, if you're silent when you should be speaking, I don't know how you make up for that. An apology may not be enough if you really say the wrong thing in really the wrong way, but I think that if you're truly contrite, if you apologize for things that you got wrong, if you try to make amends for those you've hurt, if you speak things you shouldn't, you can speak your way through it. That's a very different thing from if you are silent at the moment of greatest need. Now, my particular walk, these were words I heard when I was really in great danger of being silent at the crucial moment. And I won't tell the story further or again. It's covered in more than one, truthfully, in more than one previous inappropriate conversation. It's that crucial moment for me. So I have a lot of passion about what it means to talk about silence, and specifically to talk about silence being sinful. But I want to look at three examples today, and I'm going to do it you know, in kind of an inverse chronological order. I want to start off with the church as it is today, why I'm aggravated by it, and what's going to come in the next episode of Inappropriate Conversations. And then I'm going to jump back a decade and talk about the, you know, a crucial moment for me that I haven't shared before, where I became very concerned that, yeah, I'm, it's not enough for me to speak personally. It's not enough for me to share this story selectively and carefully in, a, in evangelistic type situations and conversations. There's a political realm to it as well that has to be covered and cannot be ignored. And then when we get to the different drummer, I'm going to talk about another moment of silence that could have happened and could have been, you know, tragic and disastrous. And even how sometimes paying the price for not being silent can be just as deadly. So let's start with an article on TheExaminer.com called Why Don't Moderate Conservative Christians Condemn Religious Extremists? Unfortunately, I don't have authorship for this particular article. My printout starts probably after the byline, but it can be found at www.examiner.com, and it's approximately a year or so old. You can see from the references of things that were said and done during the month of May in 2012. So that's the setting. This is a response to current events happening in May of 2012, beginning at the top of the article. One of the biggest divides in the United States is over religion and religious freedom. On one hand, you have conservative Christians who are quick to point out that the liberal media and secular Americans are trying to strip away their right to believe in their religion. On the other hand, you have other Americans who want to be left alone to believe what they want without fear of persecution from people of faith. The rest of America is also divided ranging from moderate Christians to people of other faiths like Judaism, Islam, Hindus, as well as other people of no religious faith at all. What has made the news lately are radical extreme Christian pastors who have spoken their mind without any opposition from the conservative Christian right. The month of May, this is of course referring to 2012, has proven to show the dark side of evangelical Christianity. CBS points out that this week, North Carolina pastor Charles Worley took his church pew to preach extreme hatred for gay and lesbian Americans with the hope that they will all die out. Quoting, Build a great big large fence, 100 miles long, put all the lesbians in there, fly over and drop some food. 
do the same thing with the queers and homosexuals and have that fence electrified so they can't get out and in a few years they will all die out. End quote. According to a report from Think Progress, Worley has had a history of extreme rhetoric toward the LGBT community. In 1978, Worley was caught on tape stating that 40 years prior, gays and lesbians would have been hung from the white oak tree. Also in North Carolina, Pastor Sean Harris was in the news in May when he advocated that parents beat their children if they suspect that they are gay. Quoting, So your little son starts to act a little girlish when he is four years old. And instead of squashing that like a cockroach and saying, Man up, son, get that dress off you and get outside and dig a ditch, because that's what little boys do, you get out the camera and you start taking pictures of Johnny acting like a female, and then you upload it to YouTube and everybody laughs about it, and the next thing you know, this dude, this kid, is acting out childhood fantasies that should have been squashed. Can I make it any clearer? Dads, the second you see your son dropping that limp wrist, you walk over there and crack that wrist. Man up. Give him a good punch, okay? You are, you are not going to act like that. You are made by God to be male, and you are going to be like a male. End quote. North Carolina also passed Amendment 1 earlier this month that not only bans same-sex marriage in the state, but also civil unions and domestic partnerships. The outrage and fear over gays and lesbians is becoming worse than the fear agenda that has been pushed toward Muslims since the horrible attacks on 9-11. The radical religious extremism goes farther than two preachers, and the state of North Carolina. This past May, Wagner High School in Oklahoma showed a video to their students that compared having an abortion to Hitler, Nazis, and the treatment of Jews during the Holocaust. This film was given to the school by some local parents, but after fellow students and parents expressed disgust over the video, the film was confiscated and the school apologized. Deeper near the end of the article. It says this, With these extreme groups and individuals making their opinions loud and clear, a certain question needs to be asked. Christians and other religious Americans who consider themselves moderate are all too often quiet when these extreme groups make the headlines with hate and intolerance. While there are often small groups of religious Americans voicing their opposition, not enough do so to make enough noise to change the direction of the issues. The Republican Party and their conservative Christian base don't always speak as clearly as pastors Harris and Worley, but their silence does just as much damage. It's possible to hold a certain position in your political and religious ideology without damaging the lives of others. If the United States is going to move forward in a direction that includes equality for all Americans, people of faith need to speak up when clear ignorance, intolerance, and bigotry are being unleashed right in front of their eyes. What this article in The Examiner complains about is the sin of silence. Have you ever experienced uncontrollable bouts of geekdom? If so, the Anomaly podcast may be right for you. In clinical studies, Anomaly's interviews, convention reports, commentary on geek culture, games, sci-fi and fantasy television, literature, and film provided a feeling of fullness while promoting health for optimal geekiness. The Anomaly podcast is not suitable for all people. Only geekily active cool chicks with a healthy sense of humor should listen. Geekily active cool guys should listen, too. Anomaly has resulted in sudden fits of squee. Broad smiles may appear without warning and could become permanent. The most common side effects of Anomaly are unconsciously joining in the Gamma Quadrant golf clap, out loud, at work, to the amusement of co-workers, 
and attempting to interject opinions aloud to hosts who can't hear the listener. But in all cases, the benefits outweigh the risks. Ask your anomaly if you're healthy enough for entertainment of this caliber. You don't need a doctor's messy handwriting to obtain a free subscription. Anomaly is available over the counter at Stitcher Radio and in the iTunes, Zune, and Blackberry stores. You can also stream episodes of Anomaly and Anomaly Supplemental at anomalypodcast.com. That's A N O M A L Y podcast.com. Just one one hour episode provides 24 hours of relief and never leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Music by jewelbeat.com. So that's an example of what I mean when I talk about the sin of silence. That if an interpersonal situation comes up, where I feel like the Lord has spoken to me and said, hey, you've got to say something, because it's better to say something foolishly and clumsily and wrong than it is to not speak at the crucial moment. Well, guess what? Christianity in America today is guilty of not speaking at the crucial moment. We are not speaking when lives are at stake. We're not speaking when Christians are talking about personally endangering those lives. Early next month, To coincide with Pride 48 weekend in Las Vegas, an event I won't be attending, I'll be talking a little bit about, you know, thought in my mind about whether I could attend. Now, it turns out that my available time and my work schedule and my vacation schedule just won't allow it. But if I were to be there, I think silence is one of the things I'd want to address. I'd be very tempted to show up and join one of the groups of Christians who tend to attend these things with an I'm sorry t-shirt on. We'll get to this in a couple of weeks, but I think the thing that I'm primarily sorry for is being silent, silent all these years when I could have spoken. Now, there are times in your life where it's smart to be silent, high school, most of college, where my points of view were not well developed, hadn't met the right people, hadn't done what I would call the primary research of interacting with others, sort of doing it Jesus's way. But once you know what you think, and once you've reconciled that with your faith, and you have the ability to intervene on behalf of people who are truly being treated by by others as if they're the least of God's creation, you have a chance to speak up and you don't do it. Well, that is the sin of silence. And I'm sorry for being silent. There's another area where I'm sorry for being silent, and that is on some of the key issues we discussed previously on inappropriate conversations. Jumping back to 1994, Here's an article from August 28th of that year by the New York Times News Service. I found it via a link to articles.baltimoresun.com, Dateline Atlanta. Not long ago, prayer in school might have seemed like an issue already put to rest by the courts. But a suburban Atlanta teacher's refusal last week to observe a new state law, of course new in 1994, requiring a brief period of quote, quiet reflection, unquote, was a reminder that the question is very much alive and that voluntary school prayer has a constituency that extends far beyond the easily pigeonholed agenda of the religious right. Quote, this is an issue that's not going to go away, said Robert Peck, legislative counsel for the American Civil Liberties Union. You're going to see more courts coming to different conclusions and eventually the Supreme Court will have to take a case and announce a national rule, end quote. A year after a Mississippi principal became a local hero when he was dismissed for allowing students to begin the day by reading prayers over the school's public address system, Brian Brown last week set off his own furor at a South Gwinnett High School in the Atlanta suburb of Snellville, Georgia. 
Mr. Brown, 41, a social studies teacher, was suspended with pay for lecturing through the state-mandated period of silence on Monday, then stalking out of the school on Tuesday after telling the principal that he would not preside over such a period. A federal judge declined Friday to reinstate him, and Mr. Brown faces a school board hearing September 6th on whether he should be discharged. In the last year, Tennessee, Mississippi, Alabama, and Virginia have all passed measures authorizing student-initiated, student-led prayers. The states say those laws conform with a 1992 Supreme Court ruling and a subsequent decision in another case by a U.S. appeals court in Texas allowing some forms of voluntary, student-initiated prayer. But all those statutes are being contested in the courts. Georgia took a different tack. Its requirement for a special period, which took effect this summer, mandates only a brief period of quiet reflection for not more than 60 seconds at the opening of the school day. The law is not the work of the religious right, but a black state senator concerned with the rising tide of violence. Senator David Scott said in an interview, After every shooting, after every kid is killed, what did they do? They got to their school, and they have a brief, quiet moment of reflection. Now surely if it is good to do that after the killing, surely to incorporate a silent moment of reflection at the beginning of the day would go a long way in calming down, toning down, setting a mood. The law states that the period of reflection is not intended to be and shall not be conducted as a religious service or exercise. The law's advocates say that it reflects what they perceive as the wishes of most Americans for some format that allows for but does not mandate private prayer. Quote, This is not a mandate for school prayer. It's the state saying, before you start the school day, think for 60 seconds, said Jay Seculo, chief counsel for the conservative American Center for Law and Justice. I'm going to stop there and jump into my own thoughts, because the bottom line is, Jay Seculo believes we should have mandated prayer in school. If you got him to a point where he could tell you what he really thinks should be going on, he thinks we should be teaching kids how to pray. It should be part of the school day. It's a piece of America's longstanding tradition. It's part of our values. He probably would go so far as to say that we're a Christian nation and it only makes sense. So for him to celebrate this distinction is a little bit disingenuous, in my opinion. Based on things I've heard Seculo say over the course of the last decade or so, and to be fair, it's been a few years since I tuned in to any of the pro you know, programs that he would be part of on the radio. Now, what really happened here in this case, just to jump back into my reaction to it, is that a young girl actually raised the issue, made the complaint, uh, talked about the fact that her teacher in this class had skipped that moment of silence, had you know circumvened the will of the legislature, and so forth and so on, and for that reason, she needed disciplinary action to be performed. Now, the moment of silence I want to speak about here, the sin of silence I want to speak about, is not about silence itself. It's not about this law. It's not about other similar laws. On some level, I don't have any problem with the idea that the state, or the church for that matter, should ask people to begin a group activity with simply a moment of silence. When I was in junior high school, you know, long after we stopped doing the prayer in school thing, it wasn't unusual for a teacher just to decide that we're going to start this day by everybody just not speaking at all for a little bit. Kind of like making that last bell where everyone was scrambling to get into their chairs, not to try to turn that too quickly into the lesson plan, but to allow for some sort of transition there. No, the silence I want to complain about here is the silence we've had surrounding this one student. Because one of two things is true. Either this young girl 
simply was allowing herself to be used, willingly or otherwise, as a pawn of the religious right and political conservatives to enforce a law that the religious right was proud to have snuck in as a not-quite-prayer, but actually really a prayer ruling, or that political conservatives felt was something that was valuable and needed to be protected. So either she was a pawn of other people, which is in itself very disturbing, or perhaps instead, well, she had a genuine need. At the time that this case broke, I was working on writing something that might have been used in a church bulletin. I was calling it uh, a Logos article, under the heading, Let It Be Me, If the World is Night, Shine My Life Like a Light, intentionally quoting the Indigo Girls and their song, Let It Be Me. And one of the articles that I had prepped around this time, where I was going to allow the church that I attended to decide whether this material was too politically challenging or incendiary for a church bulletin, or if perhaps it was exactly the kind of dialogue that we needed to be starting at the local church level. Here's what I wrote about this girl in this Georgia high school. A few years ago, a high school student in Georgia complained that the teacher of her government class had skipped the mandated moment of silence to start the school day. As a result, the state's recently passed law faced its first test, and the teacher lost his job. While the still unresolved case, back when I wrote this, publicly drew attention toward the constitutionality of Georgia's law and the unemployment status of the teacher, almost nothing has been said regarding the young woman. That's a shame. That's a silence that we should not be willing to tolerate. Her fate may be the most perilous of all the parties involved if she truly needed 60 seconds of prayerful silence that she was wrongfully denied. How's that? Well, her devotion to God and her personal need for prayer clearly indicated that she must have started the morning in meditation. Perhaps she prayed in the shower. Certainly she would have prayed before breakfast, if not after. She could have prayed before starting her car for the short drive to school. And if the time she had left to communicate her fears and concerns to God was running so short, she should have prayed at her locker before gathering her books and her homework. That said, this young woman still had prayer concerns so pressing that she couldn't wait for a restroom hall pass. She needed a minute or two, and she needed them immediately. Her complaints about her teacher's actions, however legitimate, were also a veiled cry for help. Unless, of course, her problem was more political than spiritual. In either case, she seems in retrospect to be as endangered as any of the other parties involved, parties who have remained silent about her fate. Ironically, that article was never published. And what that means is that even though I wrote something, even though I shared my thoughts and my views with myself and with my family, I was also silent about her fate. Now, this may seem like a political argument, like an either-or that I'm setting up to point out you know, how disingenuous people who believe in school prayer to start the day are, because I think that what they're interested in has very little to do with actual prayer and more to do with just you know, making a statement, a pledge of allegiance to God. That actual prayer demands perhaps a little bit more of us, can't necessarily be put on a stopwatch and called time after 60 seconds have gone by. No, if this girl's you know, complaint was legitimate, if this teacher needed to lose his job because of the peril that his decision to skip it that day and go straight into coursework put her in, then we definitely need to be stopping as Christians, and we need to have been doing this for almost 20 years now, and praying about her fate. 
Because if she was facing that kind of dilemma, well, then it's reasonable to presume that she's probably not even alive today. That she perhaps has in the intervening decades become, of, become one of the many statistics we hear about about people in their teens and their early 20s committing suicide. Of course, the other possibility is that she didn't pray when she woke up, didn't pray in the shower, doesn't pray before meals, has no feels no need to pray when she gets in her car to go out and brave the traffic in a major bustling metropolitan area like Atlanta, Georgia. No, it could be that she only feels the need to pray in schools, because that's the only place she feels like she's being denied the right to pray. And therefore, the only time she wants to pray is when she's being told she can't. Teenagers being full of petulance, as we all know. But I choose to believe instead, the more positive view of this, that this is a young woman who desperately needed 60 more seconds of time to pray. And what that says about the desperation of her personal circumstances is sobering. And what it says about the silence of me, of her parents, of the school, of her church and friends and others, silence surrounding whatever it was that was troubling her, silence that makes it okay that somebody might lose his job over taking those 60 seconds away from her. Well, I don't care how you word it. I don't care how comfortable we are as a secular society with words like sin. Make no mistake, that silence is sinful. Do you love Star Trek? How about a good, scary movie? Do sexy warrior princesses haunt your dreams? Then you'll love Starbase 66, the international Star Trek horror and fantasy podcast. Join Rick, Karen, and Kennedy each week as they discuss your favorite and not-so-favorite movies and TV shows. Only on the Simply Syndicated 21st Century Media Network. Why, hello there, Trek fans. This is Susie Flaxen, former Vulcan, half-Klingon, Lady Q, and nasty Andorian. I've rather recently written and recorded an audiobook ebook called The Return of King Lillian. It's a metaphysical fantasy for dreamers and nonconformists of all ages, and I'd like to invite you to check it out. Some have said it's a little like Alice in Wonderland meets Sword in the Stone. It's a fast read, it's a leisurely listen, and it's available on iTunes, Amazon, Audible, and at www.kinglillian.com, where you can listen to and read some excerpts. That's The Return of King Lillian. Thanks so much, everybody. Here's wishing you the happiest of trails and the sweetest of dreams. So this is what I'm talking about when I refer to the sin of silence. In my own personal life, I feel like I've heard an answered prayer that says, speak up. You can't take a pass on this one. And we've seen situations here in the last you know, two, three years where the fact that Christians have said nothing I mean, I'm not just talking about conservative Christians. Even moderate and liberal Christians have been insufficiently vocal in providing words of correction to the anti-Christian, heretical, hateful things that have come out of the pulpits in states across this country, not just North Carolina, and that school districts have done to inappropriately communicate political ideas or religious ideas dressed up as political ideas to students. Again, in states not just like Texas and Oklahoma. We haven't said enough. We've been silent. And sometimes that gets you all the way to the personal level of one particular young person, whether that person's a, a student in a suburban Atlanta school district, or whether that student is the victim of bullying in a place like somewhere in California, like San Jose area, California, or up in Canada, or whether it's a, a woman who's been you know, sexually assaulted in places like Steubenville, Ohio, where the community remained essentially silent about it. 
And whereas a country, we are more interested in punishing people who brought crucial evidence to light through perhaps legal or illegal means, through questionable means, we're more interested in punishing those people than we are punishing the people who committed the sexual acts of violence in the first place. So we got a problem with silence. And if inappropriate conversations is about anything at all, it's about something that has transformed in my life in the last few years. It says, it's time to speak up. You heard decades ago that it's far better to say something that should not be said than to risk not saying something that should be said. And maybe you need to seek a bigger audience for that. I'm going to go a somewhat roundabout way of speaking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer as our different drummer today. And I know I'm not going to do the man justice, so I'm not presuming I can tell the whole story all that well. So there are biographies of Bonhoeffer. Eric Metaxas, who I mentioned in last Inappropriate Conversations show, has one of them, but it's not the only one. Now, before I get to the Bonhoeffer piece of this, and he is our different drummer this week, I want to work it a bit backwards and use another famous text on the question of remaining silent, and specifically referring to Martin Niemöller. First, they came for the communists, and I didn't speak because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the socialists, and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. These are the words of, attributed to Martin Niemöller. Niemöller was one of the forming members of Confessing Church. Now, Confessing Church was a reaction to the Arian paragraph, which became so crucial to the rest of the churches in uh, Protestant Christianity during the time of Nazi Germany. Under the leadership of Niemöller, the Pastors' Emergency League was formed, presumably for the purpose of assisting clergy of Jewish descent, but the League soon evolved into a locus of dissent against Nazi interference in church affairs. Its membership grew with the objections and the rhetoric of the German Christians as they escalated. Now, the number one problem, of course, was that the German Christians, these Protestant Christian pastors, had not really gotten together to oppose you know, the final solution, or what would become the final solution. They weren't necessarily focused on protecting and defending Jews. Their biggest issue was they just didn't like Nazi interference in their own churches. They felt like the Protestant church should be left alone by the state, and that the government interference and the government intrusion was unacceptable. Niemöller himself spoke about his regrets for being so slow to speak up on behalf of Jewish believers, and being so focused instead inwardly on the church. Niemöller was arrested on July 1st, 1937, and brought to a special court in 1938 to be tried for activities against the state. He was fined and received a prison term of seven months. As his detention period had already exceeded the jail time, he was released on time served by the court. However, immediately after leaving the court, he was rearrested by the Gestapo, presumably because Rudolf Hess found the sentence too lenient and decided to take, quote, merciless action against him. After his former cellmate, Leo Stein, was released from prison to go to America, 
He wrote an article about Niemöller for the National Jewish Monthly in 1941, and Stein reports having asked Niemöller why he ever supported the Nazi party to begin with. You see, the problem with some aspects of the confessing church was that they began by humoring or entertaining or trying to find peaceful compromise with the Nazis, who proved ultimately incapable of being party to a compromise. Now, this should have been obvious from as soon as perhaps 1938, if not sooner, when agreements between Hitler and the Russians about the fate of the rest of Europe you know, revealed a great deal of duplicity. Here's how Niemöller replied. I find myself wondering about that too. I wonder about it as much as I regret it. Still, it is true that Hitler betrayed me. I had an audience with him as a representative of the Protestant Church shortly before he became Chancellor in 1932. Hitler promised me, on his word of honor, to protect the Church and not to issue any anti-Church laws. He also agreed not to allow pogroms against the Jews, assuring me as follows, quote, There will be restrictions against the Jews, but there will be no ghettos, no pogroms in Germany. I really believed, given the widespread anti-Semitism in Germany at the time, that Jews should avoid aspiring to government positions or take seats in the Reichstag. There were many Jews, especially among the Zionists, who took a similar stand. Hitler's assurance satisfied me at the time. On the other hand, I hated the growing atheistic movement, which was fostered and promoted by the Social Democrats and the Communists. Their hostility toward the Church made me pin my hopes on Hitler for a while. I am paying for that mistake now, and not me alone, but thousands of other persons like me. Those are the words of Niemöller, essentially explaining why he's not the different drummer, but also why the formation of the Confessing Church is something that I can support, because these you know, men were standing up for what they had addressed as pro-Nazi sentiment among the you know, larger Protestant church in Germany. The removal of all pastors who were unsympathetic to National Socialism. The expulsion of members of Jewish descent who you know, should have been cast off to a different church in the eyes of the government. Implementation of the Aryan paragraph, church-wide. The removal of the Old Testament from the Bible. The removal of non-German elements from religious services. And the adoption of more heroic and positive interpretations of Jesus in a more pro-Aryan fashion. The Confessing Church stood up to all of these things. Now, one of the members of the Confessing Church that I feel has less to apologize for, but lost his life as a result, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, our different drummer. Wikipedia describes him this way. He was a German Lutheran pastor, theologian, dissident anti-Nazi, and founding member of the Confessing Church. His writings on Christianity's role in the secular world have become widely influential, and many have labeled his book, The Cost of Discipleship, a modern classic. Now, apart from his theological writings, Bonhoeffer became known for his staunch resistance to the Nazi dictatorship, not one that he waffled about as others did. He strongly opposed Hitler's euthanasia program and his genocidal persecution of the Jews. He was also involved in plans by members of a German military intelligence office to assassinate Adolf Hitler. He was arrested on April 1943 by the Gestapo and executed by hanging in April 1945 while imprisoned at a Nazi concentration camp less than a month, something like 23 days, before the German surrender would have effectively abrogated that sentence. So there's somebody who laid his life on the line, chose not to be silent, and spoke on the penalty of death. 
Now, a couple of things arise from this you know, sort of comparison that I'm making right now between these two men. First, one of them, if the credits are accurate, and these words about not being silent because there won't be anyone to speak for you if you do, attributed to Niemöller and really reflect the intent of this particular inappropriate conversation show as well as anything else. I've seen versions of this where it extends to speaking up for the Jews when they came for the Jews and speaking up for Catholics, especially those who you know, weren't adopting the Protestant line of coddling the Nazis. But you, know, you see it today in terms of references to you know, what do we do if we miss the opportunity to speak up for gays and lesbians who are being persecuted or others. As a church, you identify the people that society is treating as the least of these and you stand up for them. That is how it works. Now, Bonhoeffer did the speaking. Now, the question that I've got on Bonhoeffer's story is, would we take silence all the way to the extent of action? It's one thing to vocally oppose the government and take your chances with whether or not you're going to be punished for that. That is, I think, really the cost of discipleship. It's what Jesus means when he talks about picking up your cross and following him. The road is not going to be easy. There is no prosperity inherent in following Jesus, no matter what you may hear from you know, televangelists like Joel Osteen and others. It's a hard road. It's a costly road. And this is what Bonhoeffer was referring to in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. The original German title is simply Discipleship, and it's centered around an exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you've listened to much of inappropriate conversations, you'll know that my feelings about the Sermon on the Mount are incredibly strong. Bonhoeffer, in his book, spells out what he believes it means to follow Christ. And essentially, he argues that it is important to make a distinction between a cheap grace and a costly grace. Quoting Bonhoeffer, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. These words coming from somebody who ultimately and well and truly did lay his life on the line for what he believes. On the question of the sin of silence, Bonhoeffer is an excellent different drummer, despite the fact that he doesn't have perhaps the most famous words on the topic. To me, where it's challenging to speak of Bonhoeffer is whether it's appropriate for a pastor to be involved in an assassination plot. It's an elementary exercise in ethics to ask the question, if you had the opportunity to go back in time and execute Hitler before the war he started ultimately led to the death of more than 20 million people in a span of seven or eight years max, would you do it? Would you be part of the plot? Would you join in with people who felt like Hitler was actually bad for Germany and needed to be stopped? And what does it say about your discipleship? What does it say about things Jesus taught? Turning the other cheek, not casting the first stone, well, you can certainly make an argument that Bonhoeffer isn't casting the first stone by joining in this plot to kill Hitler. That assassination attempt was actually a response to several stones first thrown by Hitler himself. But it's an interesting question as to whether or not we're comfortable with that level of, you know, I don't know, again, political intrigue among our Protestant pastors. Whether an assassination attempt is really the direction that we'd want the clergy to be moving in. The other thing that I think is interesting when you look at Niemöller's words are how much he regretted pinning his hopes on Hitler because he preferred Hitler to the communists. And the mistake that we make as Christians when we engage in this we-they 
mentality that says, well, I'm Christian, therefore there's other things that aren't Christian, and those other things that aren't Christian are the enemy, and they're evil, and they're wrong. And if this person is a Hitler-type person, identifies himself as being essentially kind of Christian, sort of Christian mixed in with a whole lot of ancient German mythology, but anybody who wants to call themselves Christian gets a free pass through our borders? We're in danger today of some of the same things that Niemöller could have identified better in 1932. We're in the early stages of deciding that we're going to give tremendous political power to anybody who calls themselves Christian because the thing that we're most terrified about are people who have doubts. Well, I don't think the people who have doubts, whether they call themselves atheist or whether they call themselves agnostic, are the enemy. I don't think the people who entertain socialist solutions to specific social issues are somehow anti-capitalist and therefore the enemy as if capitalism was handed down by Jesus himself. Hint, it wasn't. I suppose it's right for me to be somewhat sympathetic with people who feel genuinely torn here. People who've lived through the Red Scare. People who don't know what to do in the aftermath of the fall of the Berlin Wall, which, by the way, was 1990. That's an awful long time to have not come to a conclusion about your position on political issues. Who are terrified of Islam. Disproportionately, I would say. Not that there aren't elements of Islam that we ought to be very wary of and have strategies to deal with, but to be terrified of the entire thing? These are the issues which, I think, give us this moment of saying, hey, we've got to find a better answer than just partnering with the religious right and giving them carte blanche politically, because we would rather be associated with people who call themselves quasi-Christian. Because that sounds way too much like Niemöller's experience in his initial meeting with Hitler. There is nothing wrong with engaging in social outreach, in pushing for social justice, where Christians are standing side by side with atheists to get the right thing done. There's a lot of God in that, to make another reference to last week's inappropriate conversations. No, to me, the key is being willing to say, I need to find a bigger source than myself, a beacon that I can follow that will guide me through how to do this. And conveniently, if you're a Christian, you actually have God himself speaking to you in the very Sermon on the Mount that Bonhoeffer wrote his book, The Cost of Discipleship, around. The idea of saying, hey, I can decide how I want to manage this. I can turn the other cheek. I can walk the extra mile. And that's going to get me a long way down the road. If that's not enough to get you there, though, then you can go all the way to the end of Matthew's Gospel, the passage described as the Great Judgment, and say, you know what? When in doubt, I'm going to stand up for the poor. I'm going to stand up for the hungry. I'm going to stand up for the sick, the prisoner, the disenfranchised, because Jesus has told me that you will find me there. If that sick person, if that homeless person, happens to be an atheist, so what? That person can simultaneously be an atheist, and Christ himself, appearing manifest to you on this earth, waiting for you to engage in ministry with him, to turn things around and make a difference. This appears to be something that Bonhoeffer sort of understood in a way that maybe some of his friends, friends who later helped him form the Confessing Church, didn't see initially that the enemy of my enemy isn't always going to be my friend, for example. And that much more important than aligning yourself with somebody who hates a group of people as much as you do, it would be much better to align yourself with somebody who reflects the principles that you want to follow going forward. Hitler did not represent those principles. 
Bonhoeffer recognized it. The mistake that Niemöller made was recognizing it too late. Although, the thing that he did right was speak out against the silence. And speak out against the silence and identify where that was so costly at a crucial moment late in the war. We need to understand our point in history if we're going to leverage this. Bonhoeffer gives us an example of what it means to pay that cost of discipleship. In his case, the cost was his life. In his case, the cost was whatever he might have contributed had he somehow found a way to survive 24 more days and dodge the death sentence that had been put over his head. For us, though, whether we're facing that sort of silencing agent or not, we need to realize that we have been too quiet, too long, about too much. This doesn't mean we need to shout, but it does mean we need to speak. The time has come for me to do another Points and Questions show. It's tentatively scheduled for early October because I've gotten some feedback on a very recent Inappropriate Conversations, and I want to share that. If you haven't heard Inappropriate Conversations number 126, Less Than Human, I at least have some people who've listened to the show for quite some time who've referred to it as perhaps their favorite I've ever done. I don't have the ability to discern that one way or the other, but that feedback and other feedback I've gathered, are going to be rolled into the third feedback show called Your Points and Questions. So if you've got some feedback you'd like to provide, I can get that information from you at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com via email is the best way. But as I've mentioned before, I also have a presence on Facebook and on Twitter. Thanks for listening.